Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals, you're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. You are almost certainly familiar with my guest this week. She's an award-winning journalist, TV presenter and podcaster who has presented The Briefing and The Pineapple Project, as well as her luminous work on SBS's The Feed. She won a Walkley Award for her online opinion segment, The Frant, which has been viewed more than 20 million times on social media, and she's appeared on every panel show worth a dime in Australia. She's done a ton of extremely impressive other things, like making documentaries all over the world and speaking three languages. I'm a huge fan of hers, and I'm thrilled to welcome her to the hotline this week. She is Jan Fran. How the bloody hell are you? Hello. I just did my own drum roll there. <laughs> <laughs> I should I should load that into my sound my sound box. How are you, Jan? I'm really good. How are you? I'm well. I'm feeling, you know, it's really warm today in Melbourne and we're still in lockdown, but I just feel like it's all lifting. It's cracking open. We're going to be able to resume some normal normal kind yeah. of life soon. We are rooting for you up here in uh, New South Wales. I know Sydney's, you know, the whole Sydney-Melbourne rivalry, I think it's it's been put on hold a little bit. Even now if I want to <laughs> shit-can Melbourne, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. My Melbourne brothers and sisters are in lockdown. I'll wait till they get out of lockdown before I shit-can them. <laughs> That's the respectable thing to do. We're doing it for the country. We're doing it for the country. <laughs> doing We're doing it for, it for the all country. of you. Exactly. How have you been spending lockdown, though? Uh, I mean, you're a freelance journalist, obviously, so it's the whole pandemic has really knocked about every single industry. Yeah. You're still making the briefing, though? Look, I kind of say that I'm I'm generally okay. Like, a bunch of my work got cancelled um, because audiences are not a thing anymore. So, you know, there's I do so many events in the year that require a face-to-face audience Mm. and they've just either been pulled some of them have been moved on zoom but not really um so I took a big hit in that way um I've been I've got a podcast called the briefing so I'm 
basically been working on that for a few days a week. I'm working on a book as well. Um, I'm on the sort of lazy Susan of, of um, project presenters, <laughs> you know, the uh, sitting on that in that fourth chair with the rest of the team. Um, and there was a pineapple, the Pineapple Project on the ABC was another podcast that I was doing. So there's, there was a bunch of sort of smaller, different projects that I was kind of juggling. But it, it was so weird because I felt really busy, but also like I wasn't doing anything. Mm. And I think maybe that's just because I didn't have the delineation of like a work day anymore. Everything just felt so fragmented. It still does, really. And everything's just kind of like blended into each other where I'm like oh, I've got so much to do and I don't know if I'm doing it. Mm. You know, that's that's kind of like been the feeling for me this whole time. Definitely, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, to an extent, my workday didn't really change all that much because I work from home anyway, which means yeah. obviously, as, as you know, as a freelancer, means that I work on different tables all over my suburb drinking coffee. Um, yeah. But I feel that same sense of... <sighs> weird like excessive momentum and yet not doing enough like arguably I have done way more this year in terms of self-generating work than I have for the last few years combined and yet Mm. I still feel this I don't know if it's just something that um is common to freelancers and maybe particularly to to people with anxiety I don't know but that sense of like needing to constantly be kept busy and then you you maintain this level of busyness and then you're like well I need to ramp up the busyness and it's just to me seems to be like this weird cycle it it's sort of like I'm right in the middle of the Venn diagram of momentum and inertia (laughs) does that does that make sense yes that's exactly where I'm sitting um which is a very weird feeling that I don't really think I felt before um, and you know, what's, what's actually been weird is, oh, this is, maybe this is TMI, but who cares? This is the podcast for it. I say, <laughs> um, in, in high school, I lost quite a lot of weight. Like I was, I was a chubby, I was a chubby kind of kid and you know, you're a kid, you're an idiot, you're a teenager. You, you, you think that going on a diet is the thing to do and you starve yourself and you go on a diet and you lose all this weight. So over a period of months, I would, you know, really restrict my eating. So I was like restricting calories and not really eating that much. And of course, when you restrict your eating, you get to a point where you're like so hungry or you feel like you just need a binge day, right? Mm. So what I'd do is I'd restrict my eating for a week and then I'd binge on the weekends. And that's to me, like I've, I've sort of been going back through that time in my mind and just trying to, you know, just trying to sit with it for a bit and trying to work out what exactly was going on there. And I think that those kind of binge days for me when I was when I was growing up were I had been so controlled over the course of the week that you just needed a release. And I think growing up, I sort of found that with food in that particular period. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because it, it's that I'm noticing that similar pattern happening over the course of the pandemic and the lockdown, where it's just like I've. I've had to be in control. I've had to sort of self-control a little bit more and set parameters for myself a little bit more and, you know, delineate my day and my time a little bit more and do exercise a little bit more and make sure I'm, you know, drinking water a little bit more. And there's all these elements of control Mm. that sometimes I get to the weekend, I'm just like, I'm just going to order so much food and eat it. And I'm not going to think about why I'm doing that. I'm just going to do that. And that's going to be a release, you know? 
And I noticed myself doing it the other day and I was like, huh, this is interesting. And I've been watching people eat on the internet, which is a thing that I like to do. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Reserve your judgment, people. But now I, like, I find that I'm watching it more and more in, in a way that is almost like it's, it's almost just kind of happening. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not even doing it. It's just, it's sort of appearing and then I'm engaging in that kind of behavior. So I've, I've sort of just taken a step back quite recently and just tried to work out what is happening here? Like, do I feel like I'm, you know, losing, losing a sense of control mm. of my life or is it like a sense of loss of control of the world or just weird things, man, weird things are happening in this time. Do you generally feel like you are someone who is fixated on control or who needs to be in control? And I ask that because when you were talking about your experience as a teenager, I related to that strongly, that sense of, um, you know, controlling. To, to an extent, this is something that almost all teenage girls, I think in particular, go through. And I think that that's partly because we live in a world that tells us that we are nothing unless we achieve a certain body type. And then when we achieve yeah. that body type, we're still nothing because the goalposts have completely shifted. Um, but also because I think that as girls enter adolescence and the sense of being looked at is increased, the sense of needing to perform femininity in a way that is appealing to other people and our own confidence, and particularly our own confidence of expression that we may have had when we were under 10 years old that suddenly is sapped from us, then becomes replaced by this intense desire to be in control of uh, you know either our environment or the one thing that we're told we need to keep in check in order to be given permission to move through society which for so many of us is our bodies so we control mm. it because we have no control over so many other things that are happening in our lives and the one thing we can control is what we put between our lips in terms of food and also mm. the hunger that we experience because of that is a sign that the control is working yeah. Yeah, I've uh, I've I've honestly I've never really thought about it like that. I I actually haven't thought too deeply about it and I've only just started thinking deeply about it. I always just thought, "Oh, it was a thing that happened." Mm. Yeah, I I lost 10 kilos in high school. I lost 10 kilos in high school. Like that's a lot of weight to lose when you're in high school. And I started high school really young. I was 10 when I started year 7. And I know. I know. But Are you a genius? No, no, there's, it's, it's, it's actually a ludicrous story. Let me just give you the abridged version is that my parents um, just lied on the application form and they made me a year older than what I was. So there you go. That's how I started school at three and a half. But it meant that I was in year seven at the age of 10. Oh and God. so when I started this diet, I was in year nine, but I was, I was 12, mm. you know, so I was hanging out with 14 and 15 year olds but I was 12. So they were going on diets and reading magazines and just, I, I suppose, doing what, you know, year nines, mm. year nines do. Um, and so was I, because I was in that year group, but I was two or three years younger than everyone in the year group. And so I'm, I'm only now just kind of starting to reflect on what that does to a 12-year-old's body. Like you're not even, you know, you, you, you're probably just only starting to go through puberty, mm. right? Like you're kind of in that process of going from a child to a teenager. It's a very sort of delicate time. Um, 
and really, like I said, it's only really been in these, in in this kind of pandemic time where I've seen the behaviour of just like wanting to eat, even though I'm not hungry. It's more a curiosity for me of like, why is this happening? This is not a habit that I've seen for a while. I wonder why it's kind of reared its head in in this time. Mm. Do you mind me asking, not to dwell too much on it, but do you mind me asking, how did people respond to this weight loss? And I ask that because, uh, you know, in, in my own experience of it, you know, I went through something similar. And to me, one mm. of the most harmful things about it was that it was just met with so much reward and praise. So it established this um, cycle, I guess, of even though what was happening was incredibly unhealthy and and certainly for it to happen in such a short period of time indicated that something was wrong. And mm. yet no one around me, none of the adults were like, hey, are you okay? Should you be eating more? Or why have you lost this extraordinary amount of weight in such a short amount of time? Is something going on that you'd like to talk about? Instead, everyone was just like, you look amazing. We're so proud of you. Keep going. Look, I think the initial kind of reaction was like, oh, wow, you've lost so much weight. You're doing so much exercise. You're so disciplined. Like, good on you for waking up every day at, you know, six o'clock in the morning and going for a run. Like, yay, <sighs> thumbs up, you. But I got to a point where I lost quite a bit of weight to the point where I had a teacher intervene and say, hi, it looks like you're losing a lot of weight. Like, is, is something going on? And I took that on as, as like a point of pride. You know, like, oh, someone's noticed all the hard mm. work that I've been doing and all the weight that I've lost. It's like, why, yes, Miss Trusillo, I have lost 10 kilos, you know, thinking, mm. yay me. Look, look, look what I've put my mind to and look what I've achieved. And it got to a point where my, where my parents, my dad, God love him, he's the best, do not want to slander the man. Let me just disclaimer, best dad ever. But he just didn't know how to deal with teenage Teenagers, period, let alone teenage mm. girls, you know. So it got to a point where he would say, okay, every morning you have to weigh yourself before you leave the house and I want to see how much you weigh. And if you weigh less today than what you weighed yesterday, you're going to be in big trouble. Wow. You know. So I then had to kind of – and it was, you know, he was just trying to kind of – it was it was an act of love really. He was He was trying to do something, trying to kind of intervene – um in in the best way that he knew how but uh but yeah so it, it did raise some eyebrows for some people for sure and for for me I, for a long time I thought you know what I did something I put my mind to it and I did something and look I you you do feel to some extent better because you are exercising more and you are eating you know, you're not eating fatty foods, you're not eating chocolate, you're not eating chips, you're not eating ice cream, you're not eating all of that kind of junk food. So I took those those moments of feeling, you know, leaf and light and, and, and energetic as positive reinforcement of like, yeah, I should definitely be doing this. And in hindsight, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was, I was restricting my calories. Like, I don't know mm. what that does to your levels of iron, B12, fiber, uh, you know, like all of these nutrients that your body needs. I had no idea about those. I had no idea about how it was, you know, fucking with my hormones, how, you mm. know, I, I had no idea about any of the other kind of repercussions that might happen as a result of this stuff. Um, mm. I don't know how we got onto this, but thank you, pandemic. 
<laughs> well, let's let's move now on to taking some of that discipline or that ability to focus and look at the positives that have come out of it. So, I mean, you're obviously a very successful journalist. You have a huge audience and a huge reach. But you also – one of the things that I personally love about you so much is that you – you're so well equipped to deliver really hard-hitting truths with such great humour, which I think is so effective as a tactic, but also it's just personally very enjoyable to watch. So a lot of women who listen to this show or who follow me sometimes write and they say, "Can you, do you have any advice about how I can get into journalism or how I can be a writer or whatever? And I always have to say, I'm not a journalist, so I can, I can give you no advice about that. But you, Jan Fran, are in a perfect position to be able to speak about that. So how did you take that Mm. control and discipline and focus and build the Jan Fran brand? (laughs) My God, that's a word we're not allowed to use. (laughs) Wash your mouth out with soap. Um, I think, you know, it's journalism has changed so much in the last 10 years, man. Like so much, it's discombobulating to the point now where sometimes I get asked by university students, you know, how do I get into journalism? And like part of me is just like, I have no idea. (laughs) Like I can tell you what it was like for me 10 years ago, but it is a completely different landscape Mm. now than what it was. The one thing I can say will forever remain the same, regardless of what happens to this industry, is initiative is always going to be looked upon favorably always period if you are in front of someone and you can show that you've shown initiative if you've got a story you've made a a a podcast you've started a website you've built um something that you're passionate about that you've chased um an article you've written a journal you've started a team of um you know whatever it is if you can show that you want to do this and you're already doing this and it can be you know with assignments at uni still it can be it can be with anything that the the possibilities I think now comparative to what they were there's there's so many more ways to Mm. kind of explore that avenue but initiative is always always going to be looked on favorably and and I've, I've always said this to kind of to people graduating is you know what you want to get into journalism make shit Mm. you need to you need to start making shit you know um and obviously you want to get into this industry because you're passionate about it all right well think about what you're passionate about and how that fits into your life now because if 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 it's a passion then it's about much more than a job right like you're passionate about something it's a vocation you want to try and build it so in what ways is your passion um you know part of your world and your life now what stories do you want to tell and how can you start telling them now? And there mm. are means that exist for, to do that that, you know, exist now that weren't around 10 years ago. So make shit and show initiative, I reckon. Yeah, I agree. And that's something as well that I say to, you know, people who are aspiring writers. One of the first questions I always ask is, what do you write? And if, yeah. if the answer is, well, I don't really write anything right now because I'm not sure what I want to write about, then that's kind of where you need to start. I, I think that you're so right when you say that we there are all these opportunities now that we didn't have when we were young. Um, I'm a bit older than you, I think, but 
all of these things that can be taken advantage of where you cut out the middle person and you can just mm. deliver directly mm-hmm. to an audience. And whether or not your audience begins as three people and then slowly mm-hmm. grows or, you know, um, is an avalanche overnight, You something goes viral and you pick up 100,000 followers, whatever it might be, if you're not creating something, then you do have nothing to show people who who are looking for those kind of new, um, you know, they're looking for the new Frant. They're looking yeah. for something that will connect with audiences. And I really liked uh, Bree, the writer Brie Lee said this recently in, in an interview. She was asked, what advice would you give to someone thinking of leaving school and freelancing for a while? And I think it's probably similar to journalism and, and to that kind of creativity, is that she said... There are three things that a writer or a creative person should be and you should you always have to be two of them. You can either file on time, you can be really fucking talented or you can be a pleasure to work with. You have to be at least two of those three things. And she said, and for me personally, <laughs> when I was starting out, I decided that I had no way to tell whether or not I was talented at all. And that meant that every single assignment I had needed to be filed on time and I needed to make yeah. myself a pleasure to work with. Yeah, I, that's, I, I really like that. Because, you know, everything starts as nothing at one Mm. point and you think that, oh, I'm I'm not going to do anything until I have the answer, until I know what I want to write about, until I I have, you know, um, until I'm clearer on where I'm at. Let me tell you something. You'll never be clearer if you don't start. You have to start. You will never get to, you know, point Z on the alphabet if you don't go from A to B. You do Mm. the next best thing. That's it. That's what you do. The next best thing. What is the next best thing for you now? Where are you at? Are you at university? What is the next best thing that you can do? Mm. Life is long. Everybody hates the word. We shouldn't be allowed to use it. You use brand. Journey. Put that on the list of words that you can't <laughs> use. <laughs> of offensive language. But it, it is a journey. You know, you, it's, th- that moment is part of a much bigger journey. And I kind of look back now at where I was at university. And one of the things I want to say to myself is just like, girl, chill, Mm. like chill out. It will come. It will happen. Life is long. You are just in this part of your life now. And what you're doing is you're projecting to 10 years from now. Stop, 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 stop doing that. Mm. Do the next best thing. And from there, you'll find yourself, you know, two, three, five years down the track and you'll go, oh, here I am, you know. Yeah. Um, so you ha- so you have to start, and that was just that was sort of how, you know. I mean, you, you talked about the France earlier. That was kind of how it came about. It was just like, all right, I'm gonna see, I'm gonna see what this is. I'm gonna do one, and then I'm gonna do two, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna do three. Okay, and then suddenly I'm I'm doing four, and you build this sort of repertoire of a way of writing. You hone your ability to to pitch on time. Your clarity, your thought becomes clearer. Um, your ability to, you know, um, to file things on time and to get things on time to all of the other um, bits, of, like the editor and the graphics guys that need to work on it. You're, you're honing that as you go. It's never a fait accompli, mm. you know. Mm. People are like, oh, I feel like I should, I, sh- I should be able to do, like, I'll do this when I can do this. You'll, you'll never do it until you do it, if yep. that makes sense. Totally. You know what I mean? You'll never be a writer. You'll never know or learn to be a writer until you start. 
And let me tell you right now, nine times out of 10, what you put together is going to be a piece of shit. <laughs> but guess what? <laughs> the next thing you write will be better than that first thing that you wrote. And the third thing you wrote will be better than the second thing that you wrote. And the fourth thing you wrote is going to be better than the third thing you wrote and so on and so on. And that's how you build yourself and you build your, your body of work and, you know, that horrendous word that no one's allowed to use. Mm. Brand. Yes. And sometimes the 20th thing you write will be shit again. And that's the yeah. thing is that it's peaks and troughs, isn't it, that you you learn Doing the next best thing is a really good way to for people who have that feeling of the life that they want is out of reach or that the world is passing yeah. them by and that we have you know we all have this in the, in so much as there are so many opportunities now for people to be self-starters and I mean that's another word that we probably hate self-starters um, to be self-starters and to to use the mediums that we now have in order to create or to do something to just start it's so easy to look around at all of these other people that we perceive to be you know quote unquote successful and think yeah. well why don't I have that or how can I get that or or that person has it which means I never will and to feel you know overwhelmed and suffocated by a lack of um a lack of acceleration in your life but I think that the yeah. other thing that's really important for people to remember is that you know, I look at you and I see the incredible success that you have now. And you've got a book coming out next year, which I want to talk about quickly as well. But I don't know what you did when you were 23 years old to get yeah. to the position that you're in now. And I think people often forget we can become overwhelmed by seeing the evidence of people's hard work. But we don't know the number of years that they've spent putting into to, to where they are now. And so when you think about... You know, you're right when you say, like, don't don't focus on 10 years' time or 20 years' time and then get frustrated that you're not there now because everything has to be a step. It's also really important to remember that you can, you can establish that goal in your mind of in 10 years' time I want to be here, but recognise that all of those next best things are the only way that you get there. And you can keep that yeah. in your mind, but you have to go through the slow trudge of you know, creating the work, doing the work and establishing the, the portfolio and establishing what it is that you can go then to other people who are in a position to help you make it to yep. the next step. This yep. is what I've been doing. This is what I can do. And this is my, this is my output. And this is all that I have to offer. Anyone who is a thousand steps ahead of you, anyone who you look at and you think, oh my God, they are so far ahead of me. There are a thousand steps ahead of me. How am I going to get there? They've got something I don't have. They're so far ahead. It's exactly that. There are a thousand steps ahead of you and you need to take the steps. Yes. That's what you need to do. Now, I'm not under any illusions. I know that and, and, and look, it's changing. It's changing and I'm hopeful and, you know, I, I do have optimism in this space. But there are some industries that are much harder for people to get into mm. than other industries. And I think the media and journalism is one. And, you know, I grew up a Lebanese kid in, you know, Sydney's western suburbs in the 90s and 2000s. Anyone who's from Sydney at that time, um, I don't know if you remember, I sadly can't forget. But, you know, the, the community was really sort of besieged, I think, in that time where 
there's a lot of reporting around ethnic gangs and Lebanese crime and, you know, should should we allow Lebanese people into the country and they can't integrate and, you know, they're just – some horrendous things happen, you know, like September 11 happened, there was gang rapes in, in 2000 that were a really big story, Cronulla riots happened in 2005 and this was when I was at university. So this was that kind of formative period where I was deciding and, and working out what it was that I wanted to do and I really felt like I was pushing shit uphill. Like mm. there's just no way that I'm going to be able to get into this industry. Like why would how, – how could somebody who is – who has felt so hated by the media be welcomed by the media, right? That's that's kind of the thinking that I thought. And I didn't even bother applying for any commercial networks when I was at university because I thought, well, as if they're going to hire some brown chick with, you know, curly hair who's five foot two, like they're just not going to do that. You know, they have, they have a very homogenous look and it's not my look. Mm. Um, and I think that there are, you know, there are systems in place in, in industries like the media that, that privilege certain people over other people based on the way that they look, the communities that they grew up in and the context that they have. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think you just you, – and, and, and to anyone who's listening who might feel like, you know, they are sort of on the outskirts of like white media or on the outskirts of society because they are – not a white person or they're not somebody that is, you know, part of the kind of mainstream. It Everything is yours. It is yours. It You deserve it. You own it. It's yours. It is waiting for you to take it. And this isn't some like Tony Robbins motivational, you know, Instagram quote from hell. Like this is something that I... I would tell my younger self that rather than feel like there are things that aren't for you, it's all for you mm. in the way that there are people that walk through the world. They never have to think that things aren't for them. Of course it's for them. That's that they've, they've never really had to kind of contemplate the idea that they might not be able to do something because, you know, of their gender or their race or their sexuality. No doubt there would be people like that. And then there would be people who would have, felt curtailed by all of those things and that's bullshit that's bullshit it's all for you and it's it's a fight I think it's a fight for people to for you know individuals to realize that but then also a fight for the sort of systems that we've built to kind of break down and recognize that as well Mm. and I think they are uh, slowly albeit slowly but I think I see I see some some change happening um, in, in a lot of good ways. Mm. That is excellent advice. And speaking of advice, shall we get to the questions? Let's do it. I've always wanted to be an agony aunt. <laughs> <laughs> Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Jan Fran are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who hate writing about ourselves in the third person. Confused and Lost writes, I have been in a long-term relationship for five years and I need some advice. I'm a 20-year-old uni student. Yes, we've been together since we were 15 and I live with my partner who works full-time. I feel as if I'm still in love with him, but I'm having doubts on the sustainability of our relationship. He is one of the kindest men I know and he treats me amazingly, 
However, for around six months or so now, I have felt the need to be single and explore the aspect of seeing other people and sleeping with other people. I am beginning to question whether I really want to be with him anymore. Yet I feel guilty because of how amazing he is to me. However, we live together and he is the only thing I've known for the past five years. I'm still wonder whether I'm truly in love and want to stay with this man forever or whether I am just here for comfort and maybe we should leave to explore the single life. Jan Fran, what do you think? Confused and lost, I feel for you. I think you're in a difficult situation where nothing has particularly gone wrong, has it? You know, everything is kind of, it's, it's seeming okay and you're probably thinking, do I really want to throw a grenade into this situation that is not bad? My answer is yes. And my answer is yes for a number of reasons. One, you've been sitting on this for six months. It's obviously something that's percolating and it's obviously something that you've thought about for a long time and the feeling has been there for six months is, is a decent amount of time to, to have a feeling that reoccurs. So this is obviously something that you want to do. I think you're riddled with guilt because he's such a nice guy and he's treated you really well and you've had a really good time. Guilt is never a good reason to do anything. It can be a motivator. It's never a good motivator for a relationship. You don't want to be with someone because you feel guilty about leaving them. Confused and lost, you're also 20 and you've been with this person for five years from the time that you were 15. I think there's so much in the world for people that are your age and I really do think that you should get out there and explore and meet people and see what you like and see what you don't like and you know learn a bit more about yourself and take all of those learnings to the next relationship and what I will say as well about relationships is people think that relationships if a relationship ends it's failed and I don't really buy into that at all I think sometimes having a relationship end is actually a really great marker of the success of that relationship you seem to have spent five years of your life with this person and you seem to have learned so much from this person and this person has seemed to have added so much value to your life and and I would imagine that you likewise to theirs but all things end and I think it's okay for things to come to an end where you can look back and you can say I'm a better person for having spent those five years with him and he's a better person for having spent them with you and it's okay to part ways at that point and to meet new people. Mm. I completely agree and I also I love that you say that about you know a, a relationship ending that we do have this it's it's particularly something I think that's a directed to women I don't hear a lot of men being berated either personally or in pop culture for relationships ending as oh he's had another failed relationship it's always framed more as like well you know another woman has failed to pin him down um right (laughs) you know George Clooney being a classic pop cultural example of that finally Amal Awad got him nailed him um so this idea that somehow if a relationship ends for women, that it's a failure, I think is very deeply rooted in the idea and the, the, 
the conditioning that we all have or that we're all subjected to that the true purpose that we must have in life is to find a man to love us and to commit to us and to stay with him for the rest of our lives. And that if if somehow yeah. that doesn't work out with a, with one particular man, then we've failed. So we need to move on to the next man and we need to keep trying until we can finally say, well, I have ascended, I have found a man who is willing to marry me and put babies in me. And now I, can, now I am truly yeah. free. Um, whereas, you know, as you said, confused and lost, she's 20 years old. She's been with this boy for five years and she speaks very glowingly of him, which indicates to me that, not only has he been nice to her and, you know, she feels a lot of guilt for potentially ending this relationship because he hasn't, quote, unquote, done anything wrong, but also they've had a lot mm. of really beautiful firsts together. She's probably, if not slept with him for the first time, you know, uh, having never slept with anyone before, I'm not sure, I don't know the circumstances, but certainly has had an experience of long-term relationship intimacy and sex with this person who she likes the first man presumably that she's moved in with and set up some kind of domestic partnership with there's probably a lot of really wonderful things that they've experienced together that she has been able to take fond memories away from and that is the best that we can ask yeah. for for the for that like first great love that they don't leave our heart shredded and bloodied and bruised yeah and it'll be sad. My mum always used to say that when you left a relationship, to make sure that you left it with integrity and ethics and that any breakup that you initiated was done in a way where you could see them on the street later on and you could look at each other and smile and know that that was a parting well made. Yeah. That's really lovely. I really like that. Even if you desperately want out of a relationship, it's still painful to end a relationship um, and it's often awkward and then there's, you know, the emotional kind of whiplash that you experience when you're finally out of it and you think, well, actually, and, and I now I miss them. I miss all the good things because you don't remember all the times that you were bored or unfulfilled or dissatisfied or just annoyed in yeah. some way. But to be able to kind of look at those experiences with people and this – you know, little sister is so young as well. And to this is a really perfect opportunity for her to lay out for the rest of her life the standards that she expects of how men treat her, but also how she will be prepared to, to end relationships if she's decided that part of my life has come has run its course and now I'm ready to move on to new things. Yeah. Lost and confused, the worst thing you know it's it's a it's a bad thing to end a relationship that you know you might not be feeling it's a worse thing to stay in a relationship that you might not necessarily be feeling and frankly you're 20 get out there shag some people meet some new loves have some adventures learn some shit about yourself and take all of that to your next relationships i think you're a better person for having met this dude you know, and and the ne the boyfriend that comes after it's, he's gonna thank him. He should shake his mm. hand. I always say that. I I thank my my husband's ex girlfriend so hard. She's a lovely person. I know her. We're mates. 
But I'm like, man, thanks for sorting that <laughs> shit out. I really appreciate it. You know? It's always the worst when you're the ex-girlfriend, though, and it's great that you're, you're friends, but it's terrible <laughs> when you look at somebody like, oh, I really fixed him up for you, didn't I? Now you get to benefit from my <laughs> hard work. But this is the thing. This is the last thing that I'll say to this lovely young woman, that your life is stretched out before you. There is so much more to experience. And, you know, as you said earlier, Jan, life is long if we're lucky, and you, you need to get out there. You need to fuck a lot of guys if you want to do that. You need to have some – have your heart broken by someone. You need to break a heart. You need to – oh, God, I sound like fucking Gavin McInnes from the fucking Proud Boys there. Do not relate to that oh at all. God. Um, oh, God. You know the conversation's gone to hell when yeah. we're at that point, isn't it? <laughs> um, you need to break a heart. You need to have your heart broken. You need to – you need to experience everything that – you clearly understand is out there for you to experience. And you're not going to be with this man for the rest of your life. And it doesn't sound like you want to be. And that's not actually as romantic as people make out, the idea that we meet the person we spend the next 60 or 70 years with, we meet them at 15 years old and never have any other experiences. That's that's not as romantic as people want to believe. So you're really just delaying the inevitable you know what you want to do. The fact that you've asked this question means that you want permission to do it. But we don't need to give you permission for that. No. Nope. You just need to go out and, and do it. But do it in a way that is kind and respectful and I think honours all of the wonderful things that you've experienced together over the last five years and acknowledges that it will be a painful break for both of you but that this is the best thing for you to do. And he will thank you for it as well one day. Okay, this is a little tricky one, but I thought that Jan Fran would have some good advice on this. Earlier this year, I made a sexual harassment claim at my workplace. I'm a 25-year-old casual female employee for a large employer, and the older male perpetrator of these events held a general management position with a known history of similar situations. On top of a multitude of occurrences of harassing behaviour, which included comments, gropes, stares, initiating rumours to co-workers that I had learned to ignore because my experiences of expressing to him one-on-one that said behaviour was not appropriate went unheard. It was all topped off when he sent me a text requesting a nude photograph in return for doing something work-related for me. Prior to that message request, I was comfortable in the fact that this behaviour reflected in no way on me, and although it was not appropriate, this behaviour still occurred frequently to women in the industry. I drew the line, however, with the nude request. I raised it with HR and the procedure that followed was more upsetting than the sexual harassment I experienced. The compounding disrespect everyone has for me infuriated me. I've since been demoted and the position I once occupied has been deemed inappropriate for women or inappropriate for females, as she writes. I've tried speaking to the CEO and HR, but they continue to try to sweep it all under the rug. All of my friends and family say I should just leave and stop making a name for myself, but I haven't done anything wrong yet I'm being victimised, and so are any future women who now cannot work in that position. There are so many things wrong with it all, but I feel like I'm too small a fish and it's like hitting a brick wall every time. How do I pursue this further without taking legal action as I've decided the time, money, stress isn't worth it for damage that has already been done? Or should I let it go and wait for these fucking men to be bred out of society and organisations like this to step into the 21st century? Therapy has been great, but I'd like another point of view. What's your point of view, Jan Fran? 
Ooh. Yeah, that's a hard one. See, it's it's funny hearing you say that, you know, should you wait for these organisations to step into the 21st century? Unfortunately, organisations don't just step into the 21st century. Somebody has to give them a soft nudge or in some cases a very hard push into the 21st century. And that usually, sadly, uh, falls on the shoulders of women and of people who are victims to this kind of stuff to have to do. I find in situations like this, solidarity is a really powerful element. Is there anyone in that workplace that you can talk to, that you know has your back, that will just actually just be able to kind of get you so you know that you're not crazy, you know that you're just to be able to kind of give you those bearings of like, yeah, you're right, this is fucked. Because sometimes I feel like that instills in us a sense of confidence that we might not be able to find on our own. Sometimes just having that added person on the side who sort of vouches for you and what you're experiencing. I think it's really fucked that this person is still working and that, as you say, you've been demoted. Um, one, it's really fucked for you. It sounds like a completely unfair situation. But two, it's fucked because who knows who else this person might be doing that to? Who, el- who knows who else he's going to ask for some nudes from or who else he's going to harass? Um, and that can be a really big burden to carry, I think, for a lot of people who want to stick their neck out and who want to pursue these things because they don't want it to happen to anyone else. But they just feel like, this massive heavy burden mm. on them and that they can't just do nothing, right? They can't just quit and leave because this person's still there. Um, so I would, I would find people, if you can, within the organisation that are going to support you, that are going to understand where you're coming from. I would also see if they, they would be willing to go with you to HR again. Um, I know that sometimes when you, when you sometimes go to these places and they're just like some HR departments just don't know how to deal with these scenarios right and they just they completely put you off ever reporting anything like this again but if you can persist and if you can persist with you know someone in the organization that's on the same page as you are even if nothing changes at least you'll be able to say you've done everything that you can do um, and it's there in writing and, and the folks who made no decisions, they can't say they didn't know. It's all there. They knew. They're at fault here. Um, and then, look, sometimes sometimes the thing to do is to really, once you feel like you've done everything that you can do, is to extricate yourself from that toxic environment. Um, because it does sound toxic. You've been demoted. You, you, you know, how could you like working in a workplace where you've been treated like that? Um is remove yourself from your toxic environment and tell every single person that that jackass is going to send a send nudes text mm. to that that's what he's going to do. Like tell everyone, warn everyone about his bullshit um, so that at least you're kind of equipping them to be a little bit more aware. Mm. That solidarity is so important and it's exactly why we need, no, regardless of whether or not it's, you know, in dealing with situations at work or just dealing with the reality of being a woman in this world. It's why it's so important for women to have other women who they can speak to who will not question 
you know, their, their recollection of events in that kind of devil's advocate sort of way. I'm not saying that... I'm not saying that you're wrong to be upset, but did it really happen like that? All of that stuff detracts from our confidence, not just in being able to speak up, but our confidence in our own recollection, which is really harmful for us later on, you know, because that's one of the first... I think that's one of the most successful things that patriarchal conditioning has done to women is kind of co-opted us into this mass act of gaslighting where even as we're experiencing something that is we know to be inappropriate and harassment as it's happening we're like is this really happening did am i just interpreting mm. this wrong because we're we're sort of taught from such a young age that any anything any way that we do interpret a situation will be told we will be told about that interpretation that we must have gotten it wrong somehow we must have got the wrong end of the stick he would never have done that or he was just having a joke whatever it might be so surrounding yourself with people who you know whether it's at work or at home it's disappointing to hear that your friends and family are urging you to drop this i understand in a way why they might be doing that they might think that they're protecting you from further harm or further you know reputational Mm. damage not that the reputational damage should be yours but they think they might think that they're doing the best thing for you but it's actually not helpful to your self-esteem or to your confidence or to your ability to be able to navigate this situation and any situation that comes after it apart from anything it sounds to me illegal for you to have been demoted after reporting sexual harassment so I know that you've said that you don't want to pursue a legal case at all, but you would be within your rights to, you know, to report the behaviour. Um, yeah, it sounds like something totally funky has gone on yeah. there, right? Like, he fucks up and you get demoted? Hang on a second. What is going on there? And definitely check out your legal record. Particularly if you have the evidence of the, the text message being sent to you. Having said that, pursuing a sexual harassment claim against anyone, but let alone someone who obviously sounds like he has a lot of power in a large industry is notoriously difficult and I completely understand why you would not want to take that route because you don't want your name to be dragged through the through the mud even if you were to have some success with that the the picture of what that success looks like may actually not really be telling the whole truth I mean I was just remembering as I was reading this I was remembering from maybe seven to ten years ago, when the former CEO of David Jones was um, found to have been sexually harassing one of his employees. And he was – eventually they settled, you know, a lawsuit. He he lost his position at David Jones, but then was immediately given another position at a different organisation on a higher salary. So the unfortunate reality of the world that we live in is that men get away with this fucking shit all the time and you are just small fry to them and the choice of whether or not to pursue it legally, I think you are... I understand why you're hesitant. But I, I agree with you, Jan. I think that there are still recourses available to you and I think that be the person to make the big stink. Be the person to not let it drop. Because otherwise it will keep happening to women after you. And sometimes sometimes it requires – this is something that you have to reckon with yourself. But sometimes it does require one person to put the big target on their back in order to create change for everyone who comes after them. Yeah. You know what else I'd say? Never underestimate the power of the ice pick. The patriarchy, in my mind – 
it's not broken down by a sledgehammer. It is broken down by an ice pick. It is broken down by thousands and millions of women out with their ice pick in their corners of the universe, just picking away at it until it crumbles. And that's what you've got. That's what you're armed with. And sometimes I think when we look at an ice pick compared to a sledgehammer, we think, oh, this can't, we can't get anywhere with this weapon. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to have any kind of change. But never underestimate the power of the ice pick in your hand because if every single woman is armed with that ice pick and if every single woman just goes and smashes their little corner of the patriarchy, then mm. it collapses. Mm. And I think you just have to, you have to see yourself as part of a much bigger picture. And for me, it's just do what you can mm. do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like taking, it's like you said before, doing the next best thing. It's just taking that one step yeah. that you can take. And I yeah. heard this, um, this, this week, which I really love as well, which is carve out change, not where it's wanted, but where it's needed. And yeah. sometimes that's difficult and scary to do, but, you know, we all have to be a part of making change. Otherwise, it will just be left to individual women to kind of bear that burden for everyone else. Yeah. But it's very tricky and I would, I would definitely, as Jan said, see if you can find some support and solidarity within your workplace. Go to HR again and, and if ultimately you make the decision to leave that position, make sure you speak up loudly and clearly about how, about what your experience was there. Okay, last question of this episode. And it comes from a young woman who has been with her partner for um, a few years and married for almost a year. She says that she loves him and she generally gets on well with his family, but she is having some problems with his stepfather. She says, conversations with his stepfather are exhausting. He's constantly trying to mansplain my culture to me. My partner and I are a mixed race couple. And everything he asks when I go to explain to him is mansplained back to me. It especially irritates me when he doesn't know the topic I brought up to begin with. I've noticed it's not just with me that he has this problem. I've seen how when we all get involved in political discussions, as we usually do, the women in the room will say something and he'll shut it down or talk over them, whereas when my partner says something, he gets every word listened to. I've never called him on it, but my partner's sisters will. And maybe I've not done that out of politeness. I can be very fierce with my words and I don't want to cause a fight. On one occasion, I was talked over and I shouted in response, do I need to grow a penis to get my point of view across? Anyways, I would love to explore this topic. I wonder why I can call people out outside of family situations and yet not this one. Oh, man. Families are hard, so hard. aren't they? Especially when you're dealing with in-laws as well. Like your own family, you can say some shit to. Your in-laws, mm -hmm. <laughs> and especially if it's like a step father-in-law like it sounds like it's it's a bit of a complicated family situation I guess my first question would be is well my first observation is like you seem to have the sisters on your side which is good like they call out the stepdad and sometimes maybe even their brother who presumably is your partner so you've got them on your side um, 
And I think maybe there's strength in numbers in a scenario like this. Because if it's just a family occasion and there's, you know, a small amount of you, if you can get the majority, (laughs) it takes a little bit of like wrangling and some, you know, low key planning. But if you can get the majority of that family barbecue on your side, then the next time the stepdad says something a little bit weird, then may- maybe it doesn't actually have to be you that calls him out, but it can be one of the sisters who's like, ah, uh, come on, mm. dude, you know, stop mansplaining or whatever it is. And then, look, it sounds like you have already done this. So part of me is like a little bit pessimistic that it might change something. But if enough of you do it enough times, like surely the brother's got to get a hint, mm. right? Surely. It's so hard when you're dealing with those that weird family dynamic, particularly I think yeah. if you're a woman and obviously in this woman's case she sounds like she's a woman of colour so she's she's navigating and wrestling with that idea of being, you know, othered even further and, and turned into the angry woman of colour, which I'm, I would love to know if you have experience of, Jan. I have no individual examples to offer for this and so maybe people listening to this are like, well, that's not the way it is in my family. But I think generally speaking, the fact that, a lot of women who are partnered with men feel like it's their job to buy, for example, to buy presents for his family in order to keep up appearances because they understand that if if those presents aren't bought for Christmas, then she will be the one who's sort of judged for it because that's kind of the woman's job to keep all of that, that smooth, well-oiled dynamic of the family together. Whereas I don't know a single man who's ever felt like he'll be judged by a woman's family if he doesn't sort out the presents for Christmas Day. Um, and, and by the same token, I think that a lot of men, generally speaking again, a lot of men can get away with turning up to family events and being quiet and sullen and hostile sometimes and impolite and generally just a bit of a curmudgeon. And a lot of people will be like, oh, that's just the way that he is. He's just not very sociable. Whereas women feel this obligation, particularly when dealing with their partner's family, to be very sociable, to be very amenable to everyone, which is also, I think, what is informing this, that she says that she, you know, she she doesn't have a problem speaking up outside of this, but part of this is the societal pressure and the familial pressure to be the one who kind of keeps things light and pleasant because... Yeah, you don't want to end up being the bitchy wife. Yeah. You know, what's wrong with your wife? She's so bitchy. She's ruining the mood. She's always so horrible. She always has to start an argument. And that that is a tool, that is a trick that your stepfather, who sounds like he has a lot of privilege both as a, a white man and also in his position as his assumed position of patriarch of the family, that's a, a privilege that he is betting on that he can say and do whatever he wants because he knows that you're not going to you're going to be afraid of being the one that causes the problem. You've obviously shouted, you know, do I need to grow a penis to get my point of view across? I'd be interested to know what the response was to that because I was going to say, have you ever just tried being really hostile in response or just shutting it down the moment that he starts speaking saying, "Jeff" or whatever the hell your name is, I'm not interested. Don't want to hear it. Don't explain things to me when you don't know what you're talking about. What do you think, Jan? What about if we explored going the other way? What about if you were just, like, just 
pulled out the radical kindness card with Jeff, you know? Maybe, like, even if it was just, like, honestly just sitting with the man, this is hard. See, I find this hard because this is confronting because you have to, you've kind of just got to come with palms open to the table and sort of not have any expectation of what the other person will do. Like, they might not come palms open, Mm. you know what I mean? So you're leaving yourself really vulnerable when you do this which is to be vulnerable and to say, you know, Jeff, I, if that's his name, <laughs> I don't even know if up. that's his name, but if that's his name, let's call him Jeff. Um, you know, hey, Jeff, I think when you don't, when you talk, I feel like you don't, I feel like you, you interrupt me to the point where I feel really diminished. And I don't, I don't like feeling diminished among family. Um, you know, that's kind of how I feel when we have an interaction. And I'm wondering, you know, is there anything I can do to kind of mitigate that situation for the both of us? I find that a really difficult thing to do because I find that you have to be a really vulnerable person in that situation. And you might have to contend with the fact that Jeff's going to turn around and tell you to get Mm. fucked, you know, in which case you might feel humiliated. You might feel defeated. You might feel embarrassed. You might feel you know, hurt, you might feel bewildered, all of these kind of negative feelings, you'll feel them. Um, But sometimes it has a really strong cut Mm. through as well. It's quite clever as well in that by being vulnerable in that way and, you know, using, as you said, radical kindness, you're – it's sort of that – I find it very difficult to do the kind of the long-term strategic, I'm going to kill them with kindness, I'm going to – I'm going to offer to do more work. Is there anything I can do to help the situation? But it is clever in that it's disarming. You you know, you charm and disarm. But whether or not you are prepared to deal with the potential for him to turn around, as you said, and be like, get fucked, I don't do that, or you're too sensitive, or, or well, I'm just having a conversation if you can't handle it. For me, I find the, the more frustrating thing is not having someone explain things to me. It's having them discount my feelings when I tell them how it makes me feel to have them behave this way. Mm-hmm. Because it feels like they're just... You've, you, you're right, you've offered them that vulnerability and they've just turned around and thrown it back in your face, which is often more hurtful than just being spoken over. You're taking a big risk with, you know, coming to someone vulnerable. And, and there's a difference between that kind of like premeditated I'm going to be performatively kind Mm. you know that's that's different to being vulnerable you know you can be a performatively kind person and go is there anything that I can do may I help you with the dishes Mm. and you don't really want to fucking do that shit no that's not what I'm talking about it's this is a this is a completely kind of different it's a it's you are completely disarmed you have no armor right because the performative element of it is to some extent, a a, a level of armour, right? Because if they turn around and go, nah, I don't need your help. Nah, Mm. I don't want to talk to you. No, it's like, you're fine. You're protected. But this other way, it's like, no, you've taken all of that armour off. And if they turn around and kick you in the dick, that's going to be painful. And that's the risk that you take. Um, I sort of hate, though, the idea of... I I get what you're saying. And I logically, (laughs) I think it makes a lot of sense. But my... Oh, that... Your gut instinct is saying no. That short temperedness inside me, that kind of like, 
furious sense of injustice that, you know, th- that childlike sense of injustice makes me want to go, no, it shouldn't be her job to have to do this. And uh, But on that note, I would say that a lot of questions that get submitted to uh, this show uh, are sort of roundabout to do with a dynamic like this. You know, it might be a partner's family or mm. it might be the way that partner's friends speak to the woman or whatever, whatever it is. And the questions are always like, how can I make myself be heard? And rarely do people ever say, this is what my partner does to support me in the situation. So what is your partner yeah. doing to – it's not your job really to go to your partner's stepfather and say uh, – either say, I don't like the way that you treat me, do better, or say, hey, Jeff, I'm just I'm coming to you with open palms here. That's, that's not really your work to have to do. And it certainly shouldn't be your pain to have to – withstand if he decides to just throw it back in your face like that's something your partner should be doing for you as his wife saying listen stepdad I don't like the way that you speak to my to my wife and or I'm coming to you with open palms stepdad and I I would like for you to reflect on the way that you treat my wife yeah I think you need to have a long conversation with um, your partner in the car on the way home Mm. you know (laughs) Just break down a few key points and see what he says. There's also the added element of just like in-laws are the yeah. worst. It just doesn't matter. doesn't matter who's in-law. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter in what shape they come. They are unmitigatedly terrible. I do have to preface my in-laws are quite <laughs> lovely, just in case they're listening to this podcast right now. Sabina, you're great. But generally, in-laws are terrible. And maybe that's just like all of humanity's burden. You know, like we just have to cop it. Well, and it's a weird, it's a weird situation as well because it's one of the few social settings in which half of the room will be completely, intimately at ease with each other and feel confident to behave however, like despicably, they like because they have the familial bonds, whether or not they are close with their family or not. They have the familial bonds, which means that they, they can just do and say whatever they want. And the other half of the room is going to be on their best behaviour because they don't have that luxury. Yeah. So everyone's kind of navigating this space in completely different ways. But yeah. that's what you should do. Speak to your partner about it. Tell him to step up. I mean, that's like a good rule of thumb for everyone. Tell your male partners to do more. Um, and to and to and to like carve through those like horrible thick plants of injustice for you so that you have a clear path to move through. (music) 
You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. I would love it if you rated and reviewed the podcast if you're enjoying it. Um, You can do it as well if you don't enjoy it, but that would be a bit mean. You can also support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline only available for download to subscribers. And that will be available this week. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous because we are big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been the incredible, the entertaining, the wonderful, the very impressive Jan Fran. She is a writer, presenter, and you are soon to be the author of a brand new memoir coming out next year. Yes, that is due next year. You know what the problem with telling the world that you're writing a book is? That you have to write a book. I know the pain well. You know, and I, I know that you know what that feels like. Um... It's it's a process. It really is a process. Yeah. So this is this is a book of, of what it was like to grow up Lebanese in the nineties, two thousands in Western Sydney in the lead up to the Cronulla riots. So it's you know a barrel of laughs. It's a comedic memoir, and I think sometimes the best way to look at like times that were a little bit trying and arduous is through the lens of comedy. Um, so. That's basically the premise of the book. That's what I'm kind of plugging away at now. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, it'll be done and dusted and handed in next year, out for a, a late next year release or possibly early 2022. Who knows with this pandemic? I can't. Time is elastic. I don't know what is real and what is not anymore, but that's the plan. One of the best things you will ever do in your life is release a book. And one of the worst things you will ever do in your life is write a book. <laughs> it's the worst. That's a very good way of putting it. It's the worst. It. Yeah. Oh, I'm so down with the release. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm good. I've got that bit down pat. I just, I just need to work on on the writing. Well, thing. I can't wait to read it when it does come out. I'm sure it's going to be brilliant, like everything else that you do. Honestly, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been, it's been a huge thrill. I'm a huge fan of yours, as you know. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. Big Sister Hotline. Phone lines are open. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.